Would you please pray with me? And before we do pray, I'd like to ask of you one thing and myself as well, that you would think of at least one person on your heart today. That needs a Savior. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this opportunity where members of thy body can gather together to understand how thy body works, to be edified by thy word of truth, thy word of grace, thy word of compassion, thy word of love and sacrifice. And Lord God, it is no coincidence that thou hast called us to places like these every year to help the body grow, to nourish the body, Lord, to strengthen it in a world that would waste it away, that would destroy it. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that as we, as we bow our heads and bow our hearts, and Lord, as we listen to the message, we pray, Heavenly Father, that it would be thy message, simple and true and to the point. We pray that the sender would not get in the way of the simplicity of thy gospel. And Lord, especially we pray for the receivers, the hearers, Lord, because as good as the sender might be and as good as the message might be, it is the hearer's responsibility to understand. And the last barrier, Lord, is held by the hearer. And so we pray that hearts would be opened that ears would be unstopped and that the message of thy word like holy seed is planted and finds its way into holy ground and then yields fruit to thy glory and honor and praise. Lord, we thank thee for this word of truth so eternal it is and we give thee glory and praise and honor and blessing now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray it, amen. Loved ones, I have to tell you, my head and my heart are spinning. This is not even yet the first full day of camp. I'm going to say something that I know I've said in the pulpit before, and I'm, I trust many of the other brothers might have said it already. Brother David said it last night about the anxiety that we have as mere mortal weak persons in the flesh, why God entrusts us to send out and expound upon his message, I will never know. But loved ones, as the Lord has called some of us to do this, not just from the pulpit, not just from the teaching stands, not just in Sunday school, but in our everyday walk with our children, with our wives, with our spouses, with our schoolmates, with our friends, with our community. So we need to be ready to distribute, to share that gospel message. And it is with the help of the Lord and believe me with much prayer and prayer on my part and I can tell you I don't know how many people came to me in the last two days and even before this saying we will pray for you. And what they really meant was we will pray that the Holy Spirit and God's word would be spoken through you and that has been my prayer in these last few weeks. 
Loved ones, if you will turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to 2 Kings chapter 4. I have in mind a lengthy reading. I'm not sure if I'm going to read the entire passage here, but I confess to you that there are two readings that I want to supplement with the reading of that last chapter in Revelation 22 and among the last verses of which are, even so, come Lord Jesus. That first passage is found in 2 Kings chapter 4. The second passage will be found in Matthew 3.16 and for this passage I want you to pay special attention to the graphic image that is portrayed at the end of the passage. Chapter 4 in 2 Kings, let me start at verse 8. This is what the Holy Spirit wrote through the patriarch, through the writer. He says, And it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem, where was a great woman, and she constrained him to eat bread, and so it was that as oft as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. And she said unto her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is an holy man of God, which passeth by us continually. Let us make a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall, and let us set for him there a bed, and a table, and a stool, and a candlestick. And it shall be when he cometh to us that he shall turn in thither. And it fell on a day that he came thither, and he turned into the chamber and lay there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him. And he said unto and he said unto him, Say now unto her, Behold, thou hast been careful for us with all this care. What is to be done for thee? Wouldest thou be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the host? And she answered, I dwell among mine own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, Verily she hath no child, and her husband is old. And he said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the door. And he said, About this season, according to the time of life, thou shalt embrace a son. And she said, Nay, my lord, thou man of God, do not lie unto thine handmaid. And the woman conceived and bare a son at that season that Elisha had said unto her, according to the time of life. And when the child was grown, it fell on a day when he went out to his father, to the reapers. And he said unto his father, my head, my head. And he said to a lad, carry him to his mother. And we had, when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees. Till noon. And then died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door upon him and went out. And she called unto her husband and said, Send me, I pray thee, one of the young men and one of the asses that I may run to the man of God and come again. And he said, Wherefore wilt thou go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, It shall be well. Then she saddled an ass and said to her servant, Drive, and go forward, slack not thy riding for me, except I bid thee. So she went and came unto the man of God to Mount Carmel. And it came to pass, when the man of God saw her afar off, that he said to Gehazi his servant, Behold, yonder is that Shunammite. Run now, I pray thee, to meet her, and say unto her, Is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with the child? 
And she answered, it is well. And then she came to the man of, and when she came to the man of God, to the hill, she caught him by the feet. But Gehazi came near to thrust her away, and the man of God said, let her alone, for her soul is vexed within her, and the Lord hath hid it from me, and hath not told me. Then she said, did I desire a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Then he said to Gehazi, gird up thy loins, take my staff in thine hand, go thy way. If thou meet any man, salute him not. If any salute thee, answer him not again. And lay my staff upon the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And he arose and followed her. And Gehazi passed on before them and laid the staff upon the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Wherefore he went again to meet him and told him, saying, The child is not awaked. And when Elisha was come into the house, behold, the child was dead and laid upon his bed. He went in, therefore, and shut the door upon them twain, and prayed unto the Lord. And he went up and lay upon the child and put his mouth upon his mouth, and his eyes upon his eyes, and his hands upon his hands. And he stretched himself upon the child. And the flesh of the child waxed warm. Then he returned and walked in the house to and fro and went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite. So he called her and when she was coming to him, coming unto him, he said, take up thy son. Then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground and took up her son and went out. That is a reading up through the 37th verse of chapter 4 of 2 Kings. And with the help of the Lord, just one verse in Matthew 3. Verse 16 says, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit descending like a dove. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. I believe all of us have probably been to school, college, where we've taken some kind of class, some kind of communications class that basically gives you the tenet and the foundation for good communication, and that is this. There are three components for successful communication. One is the sender, one is the message, and one is the receiver. And all windows have to be open, all barriers have to be unstopped for that message to go from sender through the stream or media with that message to be understood by the receiver. The message today is the same message that you have likely heard over and over again. The message is simple, loved ones. It is very simple. And I wish I could expound to you some untold mystery or hidden gem or wisdom 
of the pages of this holy book. I don't possess such wisdom. I don't possess that knowledge. But I do pray that as a sender and a receiver today, that I would not get in the way of the message. And the message is very simple. Basically three parts. We are, having, we call, we are called to come to Jesus Christ. We are called to come to him. Why? Because Jesus saves and he equips those that are saved. And third, we are called to be ready to meet him. We are called to come because Jesus saves and equips his people and we are called to be ready when he comes again. That's the message. Simple, plain. I cannot embellish it a whit. And to me, loved ones, the Spirit of God has perfected this message in his holy word. My daughter recently took a class, a speech class, as many of you probably have, as I have, and she reminded me of the Greek philosophy of good, solid, convincing, persuasive speech and debate. And to the Greeks, the sender had to have three things unleashed so that they were not barriers. Three windows that they had to go through to be an effective speaker, effective convincer, an, an effective persuader. And they are called ethos, pathos, logos. And I'm sure you've heard of this just to remind you. Y'all know what ethos is. Ethos is the credibility, is the character of the speaker. And many of you don't know who I am, and I pray that doesn't get in the way of God's message today. But the idea is, if there's credibility, if there's character, if there's an ethic morality there that speaks right, that should help with the sending of the message. That's ethos, ethics. Ethics, that word comes from ethos. Pathos is a second one, the second window through which we, our message has to go through from the sender. And pathos is the cause and effect pathology. It's the, it's the ability for me to relate to your experience and to be passionately doing that. Do I resonate with your experience? The words that I'm saying, are they resonating? And finally, and by the way, pathos, pathology, pathetic, those are words that are based on the Greek Pathos, meaning resonating with feeling. I feel your pain. And then finally, logos. And we all know what logos is. Logic comes from that. This, all the ology studies come from that word logos. And that is not just the words that I speak as a sender, but the reasoning, the logic that I am using. And even though I might be a sender in a physical sense, I'll tell you that I am asking the Holy Spirit to be the sender today, which makes me a receiver as well. Now, for receiving a message, there are lots and lots of barriers. And I don't have the time to count all the barriers that get in the way of sending a message. You see, the Logos himself with a capital L, meaning the Word of God, meaning Christ Jesus when he was alive and Emmanuel with us in the flesh, son of man and son of God, when he went out to the towns and preached, there were places where he could do no mighty miracles. Why? Because the receivers weren't ready. Why? Because of their 
unbelief. I'm going to ask you about that later. Even Jesus Christ himself, if he were here preaching the God-sent message, there will be hearers that cannot hear what he says. And I pray that that will not happen tonight either. Because God has a purpose for every single one of us as a body of believers across the globe. He has a purpose for us as a body of believers in our own congregations. And he has a purpose for us as a believer individually in our family, community, school, whatever it might be, whatever sphere of influence that he, that he uh, places us in. Lots of barriers. There's a lot of barriers to receiving the word of God. I may have a lack of knowledge. I may not have sufficient knowledge to understand the message. That's a barrier. I may have a lack of ability to process the message for whatever reason, physically or mentally, maybe spiritually, that's a barrier. There's fears that are barriers to receiving this message. There's a fear of losing something, a fear of losing reputation, riches, fame, status, power, control, flexibility because of this message. There's also fears of gaining there's also fears of receiving. When I hear this message and understand it, am I going to be called to receive suffering in his name? Am I going to be called to per- be persecuted for his name's sake? Am I going to be called to be accountable for what I hear? And there are many, many other barriers, loved ones. I want to talk about three of these barriers that get hearers messed up in terms of not hearing the message and the word of God. Three spirits of disunity, three spirits that would tend to divorce us from the gospel message. And the gospel message is we need to come to Jesus Christ because he equips and he saves and he will help us to be ready for his return. And what is the reason for that? That is my sole point and purpose for this message today. The reason for coming I hope to give you a definition of that word coming to Christ. Because if you start looking at the words that are used in scripture, it means a lot more than just coming face to face with someone. A lot more than that. Three barriers. Three roadblocks. Three spirits of division. Three spirits of separation. Three spirits of Forces, spiritual forces that Satan uses so that we don't receive the message that God would have us to understand. Spirit number one, spiritual force number one. And believe me, loved ones, my head is so, so spinning here. There's a lot of things that were going on through my mind. First and foremost, especially when I saw that left hand, your left hand side of the banner there, my right hand side. When I saw that picture, I immediately thought of Daniel 12 and the fact that knowledge shall increase and many will run to and fro. And I thought of different types of anxiety. Anxiety number one, anxiousness number one, that I would be anxious for a calm and peaceful hope of the Lord's return. But anxiousness number two, that I would be anxious for his return because I'm not ready. And both of those are depicted in that banner. I thought of all the distractions and all the mayhem and all the weights and the sin that thus so easily beset us, loved ones, 
to prevent us to lay us down so that we may not run with patience the race that is set before us. I thought of scripture verses like that. And when I hear Brother Ben last night talking about distractions and cell phones, and when I hear Brother David talk about the same thing in a little bit of his sermon message, I can't tell you how I love that when the Spirit of God helps my thinking to resonate with those of others because I think it's important and it helps me with my faith to understand that maybe I'm on the right track here. The spirit of distraction, loved ones, that spiritual distraction is a strategy that Satan uses, I am convinced, to keep us from the word of God, to keep us from coming to him. Let me describe an experiment for you that was done recently by the University of this state, Virginia, and also in tandem with the University of Harvard. An experiment was done. The nature of this experiment was this. Take groups of people. They could be students. They could be workers. They could be anywhere in age from teenagers to over 70 years old. They could be rich. They could be not so. Whatever their walk in life they took, a dissection of people. And all they asked them to do was to spend six to 15 minutes in an unadorned room, no pictures, no special lightings, no books, no nothing. Sit down and think. Meditate. That's all we want you to do. That sounds so easy, doesn't it? And I would imagine many of us here as brothers and sisters in Christ, the first thing that we would think of is, oh, that's not hard to do. I can easily spend six to 15 minutes of my time praying for my family, praying for loved ones, praying for the lost, praying for an increased knowledge of the word so I may become closer in my walk with him. That's not so hard for me to do, but you know what? Almost everybody struggled with the time that they had alone to do nothing more than just to think. And loved ones, let me set this up. They were prepped beforehand. They were given time to say, what would you like to think about before you go in this room? Because I'm going to tell you it's going to be unadorned. There's going to be nothing in there for you to flip through. No magazines, no books. I just want you to think about something. You pick the topic. And they struggled Round two of the experiment, okay, they struggled. Well, do they need some stimulus? And I don't know who thought of this, but someone thought about, well, you know what, let's give them a possibility of a stimulus. We'll give them a button, they'll be hooked up, and if they wanted to, they can get a mild shock. Now hear me out. They were told about this before. In fact, they saw the effects of a mild shock. And they were given the option of mild shock, uh, pictures of dirty bugs, you know, whatever it might be. But every single one of these people said they would rather pay to avoid being shocked. Do you know what happened? They were sent in that room one by one, six to 15 minutes again. Do you know what happened? And then they were given that button. If you need it, if you, for whatever reason, you can press that button. Three quarters of the men pressed the button at least once. One quarter of the women pressed that button more than once, at least once. You know what that told me? And I, conclusion of that experiment, up for debate, but it reminded me, loved ones, how 
We are so much a slave to stimulation. And you know what? I see it every day. I live it every day. I don't have my cell phone here. I actually forgot it, but I probably would be wearing it right now. Hopefully it would be on vibrate. But you know what? When that thing vibrates, when that thing rings, when those bells whistle, my first tendency is to reach for it and pick it up. And is it my wife? Is it my children? Is it my work? Loved ones, we have so many streams of information hitting us. We are being barraged by messages. Streams and streams coming at us. And loved ones, I'm old enough now where I can confess to you that I don't think I have the physical capacity, even though I'm learning to. I yet do not have the physical capacity to assimilate and understand all these streams of information, but they are coming nevertheless. And they're coming with an increasing intensity and an increasing frequency. Can I process it all? No. And it seems that because of technology today, our brains are getting rewired. There's evidence out there, loved ones, that the thinking and the thought and the learning patterns of our brains are being rewired because of this technology barraging us with stream after stream of information, garnering our attention, grabbing at our attention, almost by the lapel, almost shaking us to grab onto whatever message this is. And let me tell you, do you think a majority of these messages are gospel-bound? I can tell you that they are not. And as much as I love to see brothers and sisters in Christ using the media and using these streams of information and this technology to forward the gospel, and it is being done, thank the Lord, it's outnumbered, way overwhelmed by non-spiritual speak. That is the society we live in. That's an age that we live in, a spirit of distraction, And loved ones, you might be unconverted tonight. Most of us might be converted, I understand. If I'm looking around and and I recognize at least a small fraction of the group here today, many of us are believers, and yet, loved ones, are we not distracted, at least in part, by these things, by these messages that don't get us closer to the kingdom of God, that don't get us closer to a walk with him, We are getting distracted. I know, and I'm living it. And I'm willing to to imagine that you are as well. It is almost as if, as the experiment would suggest, that we are forgetting how to spend time alone. That we are forgetting how to be still and know that he is God that we are forgetting to teach our children to do the same. Question for you, can we not take a Sabbath from our smart devices? Should we not take a Sabbath from our smart devices? I'm gonna challenge myself and all of you, each one. Can I pick a day, Sunday, the day of rest anyway, or the Sabbath day, whenever you Honor that. Can you go without your cell phone or your smartphone or your smart tablet for one day? Just one day. Spirit of distraction. Second spiritual force that tends to divide us from God's presence. 
The spirit of disbelief. Wow, loved ones, I have some statistics to vent to you. And these are really eye-opening. Most of you know about the Barna studies. I'm not going to inundate you with statistics and, and things like that. I will mention a couple of these. In one of the Barna surveys, he asked people, do they think Satan is real? Is Satan real? 60%, over 60%. And these studies, by the way, that I'm quoting here were not done just yesterday or even this decade. They were then done in the decade previous in the 2000s. You think Satan is real? 60% of the respondents said no. And what is really amazing is that that 60% were born-again Christians who confessed via the survey requirements that they had confessed their sins, that they had peace with God, that they knew they were going to go to heaven because of faith in Jesus Christ. 60% of those born-again believers that responded to the survey said, there is no Satan. He is not real. Can you believe that? Was Christ sinless? Over 40% said no. And that's 40% of the born-again category of believers. 40% of those survey respondents said no, he was not sinless. Loved ones, what happens to the gospel message if you don't believe there is a God? If you don't believe that there is a Satan who buffets him, if you don't believe that there is a hell, if you don't believe that you are lost and condemned because you're not approaching the light of Christ. One of my favorites, 7,441 pastors of all different denominations were asked some questions. Was there a resurrection? Did Christ physically resurrect? In some denominations, 30% of the pastors said no. In some denominations, 50%, over 50% said they do not believe in a physically resurrected Christ. That's eye-opening. That is dangerous. Is the word of God infallible? No mistakes? No contradictions? In some denominations, 90% said the word of God is, they have doubts that it is infallible. It's not infallible. There are some contradictions. Loved ones, these are pastors of all different Protestant denominations. And do you know when this survey was done? It wasn't done in this decade. It wasn't done in the decade previous or the previous before that. It was done in 1987. And even then, Many, a majority in some cases, believe that Christ did not physically resurrect and that the word of God is not infallible, that there are mistakes and contradictions. Recently, as recent as this past few months, New Testament scholars study the Bible, the teachings specifically of Jesus Christ and his words and his description of his methods, his life, and other historical documents. And their conclusion after the analysis was this. 
that 30% of what we read in God's word, which we call the Holy Bible as we know it today, is authentic. Oh, loved ones, 30% of what we read in scripture, they're concluding these scholars of the New Testament age are saying that only 30% of what we heard him say and what we listen to in terms of description of what he did are authentic. Only 30%. That really makes me angry. We have pastors that are preaching that Christ did not physically resurrect, and we know what the Apostle Paul said, if you don't believe in a resurrection, then your faith is in vain, and you wouldn't be sitting here today. And loved ones, we need to teach our children. We need to teach them that you cannot be constrained by these other teachings, no matter how good they sound, it is all based on a simple belief. Do you believe in Jesus Christ or not? Do you believe that he physically resurrected? Do you believe that if you die with him that you will be resurrected too because he's gonna give you the power to do that? We need to get that message out to our children and our children's friends and the parents of those children because they're certainly not getting this message and they didn't get that message in 1980 or 1970 Loved ones, the word of God is being diluted as we speak, and it's happening not just gradually, it's going downhill. This is the spirit of disbelief. And you know what that 30% of, if I believe only that 30% of what I read in the Bible in terms of what Jesus said and what he did, that only 30% of that is accurate, is authentic, you know what that is? That is spiritual adultery. That is me having one foot in the Bible and having one foot in the, all the other extremities in the world because maybe the theologies there sound better. And like the brother mentioned in the forum this morning, maybe they have all the answers more than what we do here. So I'll go over there. It sounds better. They have better answers. Oh, I can refute others who contradict this ideology or this theology. Wow, that's dangerous, loved ones. You know, I, I think of, when I think of that 30%, I think of that, you know, Mark chapter nine where the, the man with the lunatic son, he comes to the disciples, they can't heal him. He comes to the Lord Jesus and says, please heal my son. And the Lord says, if you believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And the man said, what did he say? He said, I believe, and help my unbelief. Do we feel like that sometimes? Do we feel like, yes, I'm a believer, but you know, there's some things I don't really think are really important in scripture. Shouldn't be part of doctrine. How far are we willing to take that kind of attitude? Luke 18.8, nevertheless, and this is the words of Jesus, I wonder if this falls in the 30% accurate or the other 70%. Jesus said, nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith? I wonder. Matthew 13, 58, and a few other places in the Gospels, it says, Jesus did not many mighty works there because of their what? Their unbelief. James two nineteen. love this. You believe there is a God? You do well. The devils also believe and tremble. What does that mean? And are we any better than the devils? Because when the devils are confronted with God, 
Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, they know their place, they know they've been sealed to doom, and they tremble. There is a response. If you are unconverted, my friend and seeker of the truth outside of Christ, do you believe there is a hell? Do you believe in the healing light of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that you're condemned because you're not approaching the light or coming to Jesus who is the equipper, who is the savior, the redeemer? Do you believe that there is a devil who wants to segregate you from that eternity that God has put in place for those that love him? Because if you don't believe that, well then heaven help you and we'll pray for you. Because if you're not 100% in, then you can believe anything you want. You can create your own agenda and you can transpose it and superimpose it on the word of God and create your own theology and amass lots of followers. And you know what? History has shown us that many people have done that and many have been deceived. And that's the third spirit. That's the third spiritual force that I like to talk about and discuss. The spirit of deception. Jeremiah 17, 9. What does that say? Many of us have committed to that, that verse to, to our hearts by memory. To memory by our heart. It says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then I like that. The next verse that says, I, the Lord... Search the heart and try the reins. Oh, the Lord knows. We know that. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 and 14. I love this because the Apostle Paul is warning us that false prophets are going to appear and be transformed before our very eyes with their theology as apostles of Christ. And he said, no wonder, because Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. That is deception. That is from the master deceiver, by the way. Matthew 24, 24. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders, just like Jesus Christ did, insomuch that if it were possible, if it were possible, they would deceive even the very elect. That's deception. We are living in an age of elite study, of elite education, of hypothetics, of agendas that are trying to be superimposed on the simplistic gospel message of this, what we call the love diary. I love that, the simple idea that Brother David gave yesterday, last night. You know how we know what happened at the South Pole? Because some of the men wrote diaries. Do you know what this is? This is a love diary. It is a love diary that was written by one person, the Holy Trinity, through the Holy Spirit by the hands and the hearts who were connected to him, the Holy Spirit, and penned the words down that they heard. That's how the word of God came to be. And that's how this love diary came to be. And Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away. We heard about that last night. But my words, these words, they will not pass away. And you can believe in the 30% of those words or whatever, but the other 70%, they won't pass away either. Spirit of deception. We are living in an age where we can ask questions 
that can twist the truth very easily. I love Joshua 5. Because when I read Joshua 5, I rem- I, Joshua 5, here's the setup. The children of Israel have just crossed the Jordan. They're very near Jericho by Gilgal. And they need to defeat, start defeating the heathen so that they can enter into the promised land. And around about that time, Joshua sees a man with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua asks a very simple yes or no question. He says, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? That is so simple. It's a yes or no. You know what the answer of this man was? This messenger from God who had the sword drawn? He said, nay. He said, neither. But as captain of the Lord of hosts am I come. I'm not neither for you or against you. I represent the Lord God Almighty. And it's up to you to do something with that. And luckily, Joshua did the right thing. But I love that. It shows me, loved ones, and it should show you that we can ask questions that have very funny answers, that have contradictory answers to the simple truth of the gospel. We live in an age of those hypothetical elite logics, that thinking, those debates, that theology. You know, it's nearly 100 years ago that uh, Mr. Sheldon wrote that book entitled, What Would Jesus Do? And I love that book. But you know, the very title of that book is a hypothetical. And if you ask those types of questions, you could get some funny answers from scholars around the globe. What would Jesus do if there was this condition? What would Jesus do if he was set in this space? You know, we need to stop this hypothetical debating. We need to go back to the basics and we need to think, it's not what would Jesus do, it's what did he do? When I read the gospel messages and those words printed in red and the things that the Savior did, what did he do? Can I model my life after what he did do, not what he would do, as expressed by some scholar who knows the Bible probably way better than I do? It's no wonder that the Apostle Paul in his exhortations to Timothy and Titus said, you know what, avoid, shun, these fables, these vain babblings, these endless genealogies, because they do gender strife. And loved ones, I am so thankful for those of you, and I'm hearing the younger generation, the younger born-again believers that know way better about the, you know, reformed theologies and other uh, 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 theology um, treatments that are being espoused in the world today. I love the fact that they're on top of it and they can even refute it. But I wonder sometimes, are we spending too much time trying to refute and just say, you know what? My simple faith is I'm a believer. This is what God did for me through Jesus Christ. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to try to be as obedient to his word as possible and not lay some theology on the simple message because I'm, I'm looking at what he, do, what he did do and I want to be just like him. How do I know what is right? How do I know what is real? This is the spirit of deception we're talking, loved ones, and I know you know the answer because you have the spirit of discernment 
whereby we can tell through the Holy Spirit what should be right, what is wrong, what is real, and what is not. And loved ones, that's, that's a very interesting question today because as I look at movies and as I read things and as I see the way things are constructed by the technology and media of today, I have a very difficult time understanding what is real and what is not. On that screen, is that real? Did somebody actually take a picture of that actually happening? Or was that rendered on some computer or supercomputer? It's getting really difficult to tell, loved ones. Let me read you something in 1 John chapter 5. And I don't profess to know what this means entirely. But let me read in chapter 5 of John's first letter. He says, this in verse 6, he says, This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, get this, the Father, the Word with a capital W, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in the earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. I don't profess to know exactly what those words mean, but here's what I get out of it. I hear that in heaven, there were three that bore witness. And by the way, where you see testify, testimony, bear record, those are all martyr words. In Greek, that's martyr for witness, testimony, testifying. And one martyr there in heaven was the Holy Ghost. And one martyr in the earth was the Holy Ghost. How do I know what's real? because I have the Holy Ghost. The Lord has given me the Holy Ghost when I yielded my life to him as a servant to obey, and Lord knows I'm not completely, I'm not complete in the body that he has for me prepared. I'm not complete in my committal, but I have his spirit. And I love what the Apostle Paul says in the, one of the letters to Corinthians, he says, yeah, how do you know what is real? You know, the only thing that, you know, spiritually speaking, our physical eyes can never see, our spiritual ears have never heard, our heart can even not enter into it the things that God have prepared in the spiritual realm. Because they're, I'm physical, he's spiritual. Well, how do I know that they're there if I've never seen them? If I've never seen the face of God, if I've never been in his presence? Well, it is through Christ and his Holy Spirit. His spirit is the one that reveals these things to us. And if you don't have it, if you don't have him, these things are foolishness to you. And that's what the world thinks. This is all a fable. 30% is okay. I can verify that in other historical references. The other is fable. Really. You know why? Because they don't have the Holy Spirit. If they did, then they would be 100% committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the message, loved ones. When John the Revelator, through this revelation of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ said, even so, come Lord Jesus, that come is a very special word. And in fact, that's the reason I, I read to you Matthew 3.16. What was that? That was when Jesus, after he was baptized, he came straightway out of the water and the Spirit of God descended like a dove on him and lighted upon him. That is a picture of the oneness of the Spirit of God, the testifying, the witness that the Son of Man was also the Son of God. And that come word, that lighting upon, is the same Greek word 
So the message today is this. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Loved ones, we have an opportunity to come, as in come equals complete. I want you to listen and, and, and uh, think about that. The word come. The picture here is not just come, like I step up to Brother Jim and say, I'm, I'm coming, I'm gonna be face-to-face, I'm gonna talk to you. The word come in the gospel message means way more than that. It means to stretch yourself out on the altar of sacrifice. Your all is out there, and the Spirit of God will take your hand. He'll match your hand with his. He'll match your feet with his. He'll match your heart with his. He'll match your mouth with his. And if you are 100% committed, you will be able to be complete in him and do his bidding. And this is not just to you. This is a message to me first and foremost. And there are times, loved ones, when I have failed to be on the altar of sacrifice, laying out there like the dead boy with his hands, hands outstretched and his legs. And the spirit of Elisha, which is double the portion of Elijah, matched his hands, matched his feet, matched his body, his mouth, and the boy became alive. That is the spirit of unity. That is the spirit of completeness. That is the spirit of affinity. That is the spirit of come, Lord Jesus, even so. Surely, yea, come. Loved ones, we have, a com- we have an opportunity to be complete in him now. It's not, let me get ready for his coming. I know he's coming. He said he would come. It is now. The time is now. Stretch out the arms. Stretch out the legs so that you can do what he wants you to do. Run where he wants you to go. Say what he wants you to say and feel what he wants you to feel because this is the Holy Spirit's work. The Holy Spirit's work. It is the Spirit of God. He is the spirit of unity, affinity, coming, completeness. That is the picture of Kings, 2 Kings chapter 4. That is the picture of Matthew 3.16. That is the picture of the writer in Proverbs when he said, there's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. That is the picture of Jonathan, the son of Saul, and David, the uh, the, the, the son of Jesse, whose souls and hearts were knit That very word, knit, in Scripture. It is the picture when we read John 3.16 that says, Whosoever, for God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know what? In the Greek, it says that whosoever should believe into him should not perish but have everlasting life. Not 30% in and 70% out. 100% committed, believing into him that we may be crucified 100% in Christ so that we may be 100% resurrected to a newness of life and to be ambassadors of what? A completeness ministry, a ministry of reconciliation where a holy God needs to be reconciled to an unholy people and they can do that through one man, Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life and the Holy Spirit being the distributor of gifts in the hearts of men, some apostles, some teachers, some pastors, some evangelists. Wow, my time is short. My time actually went long. My apologies for that. Thirty percent of Jesus' words and his ways 
authentic, that is spiritual adultery. That is non-committal. If I took that 30% and lived my Christian life that way, and Jesus returns, how long do you think I get to shore up that extra 70%? If you're 90% there believing, but you have 10% doubt, how long do you think it's going to take you to recoup that 10%? Just like that. It says, just like that, in the twinkling of an eye, faster than what I snapped, I will be clothed upon if I have his Holy Spirit, because if I do, I'm a child of God and heirs and joint heirs with Christ, and I will be ready if I am 100% committed. And you know what? I know there have been times when I've felt worthless, that I don't feel like I should be doing what I'm doing. I don't feel like I'm worthy to be up here either. But you know what? Has anyone asked you to pray? Maybe you've never prayed in church. But if someone asks you to pray, would you do it? Are you 100% committed? Or would you say, I don't have the skill, I don't have the talent? Well, you know what? Compare yourself with a dead person, like that boy. That boy had no talent. Dead people have no talent, no skills. And yet the Spirit of God raised him to life, and you know what he was? He was a testimony and a witness to the Spirit of God and the power of the resurrection. And you have way more skills and talent than a dead man or a dead woman. If somebody asks you to pray, do it. Even if you've never prayed before, do it. Somebody asks you to teach, do it. Somebody asks you to go out to a mission field that you're uncomfortable with, do it. You may not know what to do. You may not feel equipped, but you know what I know? I know that the Holy Spirit is the equipper I know that Jesus saves. I know that if I come to him and yield to him, he will do the rest. As Jim said, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. And I believe that promise. I don't believe in it in 30%. I believe in it in 100%. There's two kinds of anxiousness in this banner up here, as I mentioned already. And that man that's standing still and knowing that he is God, he has the calm, peaceful, anxious hope of a return, of a glorious return where he will be whisked away to the heavenly portals and spend eternity with his creator. And the other group, that anxiousness number two, these people, they're, they're fretting. They're not standing still, they're scrambling. There's mayhem in the world. They're not taking the time to set their priorities, to understand what is true, what is right. What is their vision for life? What's their purpose? What should be their priority? I pray that every single one of us would be in the anxiousness group, number one, where we have peace with God because we are justified by faith in Christ Jesus and not in the group of anxiousness Number two, which would say to God, let the the rocks and the mountains fall on us and save us from the wrath to come, but because we are not ready. The time to be ready and complete in Christ is right now. And if we do that, we will hear the words of Jesus Christ that says, well, 
Come, blessed of my Father. Because when I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me. Was I in prison? You came to me. And because we are complete in him, and because this, this heart to be like him, to be like the, the ultimate servant, is so ingrained in our head and heart, we won't even know. We'll say, we never knew you were thirsty. When, when did we ever see you doing that? We would have ministered to you if we saw that. And he said, Jesus says, yeah, you, because you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Inherit the kingdom. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well done.